Since about New Year's Day, uh, Christine and Squire and I have been preaching this sermon series called The Unnamed, about all of the important but unnamed characters in the biblical narrative. This is the 14th and last sermon in that series. Today, the Gen Z guy. Two lessons from the Gospel of Mark this morning, one from Thursday in the Garden of Gethsemane, and of course, one from Sunday in the Garden of Resurrection. First from Mark 14, immediately while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him were a crowd bearing swords and clubs. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. The police caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and fled off naked. And then from Easter Sunday morning, Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might anoint the body of Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They'd been saying to each other on the way, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But the young man said to them, Don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. He's gone ahead of you to Galilee. And so the women went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For those of you who read a little bit of Sophocles and Plato in prep school, I want to teach you a Greek word this morning. The word is neoniskos, and it means youth or young man. It's a relatively rare word in biblical Greek. It only appears 11 times in the entire New Testament, and it shows up twice in the Gospel of Mark. I just read both occurrences for you. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas kisses Jesus, the soldiers arrest him, and then all of his erstwhile friends instantly abscond like a bunch of college sophomores with solo cups when the cops show up at the frat party. And then Mark tells, tells us about this young man, this Neoniscus. We don't know what he's doing there, but he's apparently a follower of Jesus. And Mark tells us that he's wearing nothing but a bathrobe he probably filched from the Ritz-Carlton when he was on spring break. When the cops grab him, he manages to slip away, but he leaves the bathrobe behind and scurries off into the night like a streaker and is never heard from again. What is this guy doing in Mark's narrative? Remember that Mark is a slim little Jesus biography, only a few pages. He doesn't have time for extraneous stories. 
Even Mark's fellow evangelist had no idea what he was trying to accomplish by telling us about this guy. You know, Mark was the first gospel written. Matthew and Luke come along a few years later. And during the story of Jesus' suffering at the end, Matthew and Luke copy Mark word for word. They are shameless plagiarists, word for word, except for this story. They leave it out because they're as puzzled as we are. 2,000 years of biblical scholarship, we still don't know who this guy is. He's like an abandoned subplot you put in your television series or your movie or your book to spice it up a little bit. You know, like a side story about a minor character like Cousin Greg from Succession or something. But then you forget about your subplot and you leave it hanging there. I said this guy never shows up again. Or does he? Because the only other place Mark uses the word neoniskos is on Easter morning in front of that open tomb. When the women come to the cemetery to pay their respects to Jesus with a wheelbarrow full of spices, lavender and sage and frankincense and myrrh, it turns out that someone has moved the ginormous 3,000-pound boulder blocking the entrance to the grave. They're curious. An empty grave. They scurry inside to find out what's happened. Grave robbers, they think. But no, Mark tells us that there is a young man there, Aeneas, a college sophomore, wearing white, And he says, don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's already gone to Galilee. Go find him. It's only the second time Mark has used this word, Naniscus, young man, college sophomore. Mark tells us that this college sophomore is wearing a white robe because Mark, you see, is something of a fashionisto. He loves to talk about people's clothes, like that discarded bathrobe at Gethsemane tells us this guy's wearing white. Mark is like those reporters from Entertainment Tonight on the red carpet at at the Academy Awards. Who are you wearing? Might be the same guy at the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Resurrection. Why otherwise would Mark use that rare biblical word, neoniskos? In Matthew and Luke, of course, it's angels who tell the women about Jesus' resurrection, gleaming Vanny envoys from the great blue beyond. In Mark, it's just a guy wearing white, wearing a white jacket, a white shirt, a white tie, white pants, and white shoes, dressed like he's off to pick up a fetching co-ed for the spring gala. Three days before this, he ditched Jesus as if he were radioactive, and now three days later, he's heralding the resurrection. Resurrection is more modest in Mark than in the other Gospels. In Matthew and Luke, there are angels, there's an earthquake. Did you notice that there isn't even a risen Lord in Mark's Easter story? Jesus is missing from Mark's Easter story. He never shows up. All it is is a dislodged boulder, discarded grave clothes, an empty grave, and a college sophomore. He's the Gen Z guy. And I call him that because he's the same age as the people in our world who were born between 1997 and 2010, Generation Z. The youngest of them are 13, the oldest are 26. They're famously digital natives, right? 95% of them have a smartphone. They typically got it on their 12th birthday. They spend six hours a day on their phone. Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat. 
They know nothing about rotary phones or even landlines or cable TV or network TV or cassette tapes or 8-track tapes or CDs. Weirdly, they do know about LPs, the oldest of the media I just mentioned. What's happened in their lifetime? 9-11, the Great Recession, climate change, COVID-19, George Floyd, and wars in Ukraine and Afghanistan. Their outlook is a little cloudier sometimes than those of us who are a little older. Their future is less certain. But they don't give up. They're the greatest, best-educated generation in the history of humanity. They're our future. And it's just there that resurrection is heralded from these young people. Don't be afraid. He's not here. He's already walked 100 miles to Galilee. Go find him. Might be a more modest resurrection than we'd hoped. Not brilliant, gleaming angels from beyond Alpha Centauri. Just a young man, a Neoniscus, a college sophomore. And so we still have to go through the loss of those we've long loved, right? We still have to face the harrowing diagnosis or the difficult chemotherapy. We suffer broken hearts and broken homes, but Jesus goes on before. Twenty years ago, Mary Carr wrote the most splendid poem in The New Yorker. It's called A Blessing from My 16-Year-Old Son. And 20 years ago, it meant so much to me because my son had just turned 16 And the son she talks about reminded me of my son. She says her son is six feet, three inches tall, and his implausible blue eyes. She describes him as a muscled obelisk. I love the phrase she uses, a muscled obelisk. And she talks about how he's growing up and away from her and how much of a cryptic mystery he is to her growing up every day, growing up and away. A girl with a navel ring might make his cell phone buzz. They are creatures strange as dragons or eels, she says. He wants to date a girl with tattoos because she'll become a woman willing to do stuff she'll regret. This young man gets into an accident with his mother's car. The policeman gives him a ride home, and when he gets home, he says, Mom, did you and Dad screw up this much? And his mother says, Don't blame it on us. You're your own idiot now. The cops tell the mother that the girl whose Chevy he hit was not hurt, but she was a wreck. She didn't know what to do. She was sobbing, tears, And the cops tell the mother that when they arrived at the scene of the accident, they saw this young man standing in the glare of the car's headlights, holding this young woman in his arms, draping his coat over her shaking shoulders. Nice kid, says the cop to the mother. A blessing for my 16-year-old son. Sometimes a modest resurrection is all we've got but it happens every time we can make death work backwards. Yes, that's the way Aslan puts it from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. After his spectacular resurrection and he cracks the stone table in half, death, he says, has begun to work backwards. That's what happens every time we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. 
The Phantom of the Opera is closing on Broadway a week from today, April 16. It's the longest running show in Broadway history. It opened on January 26, 1988, 35 years ago. 14,000 performances. Thelma Pollard is the makeup supervisor for The Phantom of the Opera. She's been with the show since opening night. 14,000 performances. Well, she skips the matinees, and surely she get, gets vacation now and then. But for 35 years, six times a week, she has been turning a man into a monster. With her cosmetic artistry and latex and foam and foundation, she creates the repulsive disfigurement that terrifies little children and fascinates older ones. Thelma has worked with 30 different phantom actors. Do you know what she does in her spare time? She takes her mascara and her lipstick and her foundation and her rouge and her hairbrushes to hospital rooms where she works with patients who have been disfigured by cancer or accident. It's the opposite of my phantom work, she says. In the makeup room at the theater, she turns beauty into disfigurement. In these hospital rooms, she turns the disfigured into the beautiful. Ah, such a small thing, yes? Makeup. Have you ever lost your hair or your complexion to chemotherapy? Thelma's making death work backwards. Can you see it, this giant slab of stone cast carelessly aside like a poker chip? The fractured seals, the yawning mouth of an empty tomb, the crucified Christ himself shattering death's door. Can you hear it? The laughter of things beyond the tears of things, the meeting of darkness and light, and the final victory of light. A joy beyond the walls of this world, more poignant than grief. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.